So over the course of the past few months, we've been kind of doing this as a summer series. We've been talking about the concept of calling. And I don't know if you've ever really wrestled with that in regard to your own life, but we're kind of trying to provoke that from you. We're trying to encourage you to wrestle with this idea of calling. And so we've been talking about this idea of why not you, and really wrestling with the fact that many of us spend a lot of times talking ourselves out of the dreams and the desires and the calling that God has specifically placed on our life because we think that God has every intention to use somebody else but not us And what we've been discovering as we've been working our way through the Scriptures and looking at a variety of things that the Lord reveals to us in His Word about the concept of calling is that the Lord is calling us specifically and equipping us specifically and giving us plenty of opportunities and people that invest in us that help prepare us for the things that He's calling us to do. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a portion of Scripture from Luke chapter 14, and we're going to be specifically talking about this idea of a cost that comes with this. And specifically, what we're going to be talking about is is deciding the price that we're willing to pay to answer the call. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 14. We're going to pick up at verse 25 in Luke chapter 14 this morning. So Luke chapter 14, starting with verse 25, and this is what the Scripture tells us. It says, now great crowds were accompanying him, and that hymn that it's referencing there is Jesus. So again, it says, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at it together this morning and to think about this idea of the price that we're willing to pay to answer the call to follow you. Lord, I I don't know that this concept gets presented enough. I don't know that this is something that, that we really think enough about, but when we look at the words that you use here and the stark imagery that you purposely use to try and get our attention, it's obvious that this is something that matters to you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would count the cost. We pray that we would wrestle with this idea of, of the price that we're willing to pay to follow you, just like you explain it in this portion of Scripture. And so, Lord, we pray that you give us your wisdom and give us your insight as we look at this portion of Scripture together today. And we pray that there would be something here that would help us in our walk with you as we seek to grow together in our relationship with you, and uh, likewise to live out the calling that you've placed on our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be able to do this, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this week, it, it's, it, it's kind of interesting. So 
this week being our kids camp week here at the church, we were talking about archaeology and talking about a variety of things that took place during Bible times and the way people built things and the way people did things. In our day and age, we tend to refer to the, the building aspect of things as real estate. And you ever notice that that sometimes your week has a theme and you start to notice that as the week is going on. And I think this was real estate week in, in my life because I, I can't tell you how many conversations I had this week related to real estate. And one of them happened to be Wednesday. I got together with a, a group of, of uh, four other friends and one of them happens to be a realtor. And, uh, and he actually, while we were there, he was talking about a variety of things um, he was talking about the fact that the housing market is hot, right? So everybody knows that the housing market is hot. Um, houses are appreciating in price. They're selling quickly. And uh, while, um, while I was sitting there and, um, and you know, having conversation with these friends, he was talking about how this one particular friend, he said, I can't, I can't even keep up. Like, I can't even keep up with everything we're doing. I know we have a couple of realtors here in the congregation as well, and you're probably feeling the same way. And before the meal was over, he attempted to convince our server to become an agent with his agency because he thought, you know what, she has got a great personality to do this sort of thing. He actually tried to do some recruiting. I was like, you are just shameless, right? You are shameless. But how many of us would admit that, that buying a home is probably one of the most stressful things you have ever done? in your life. And I was thinking about this this week since this kind of came up as a theme. I purchased four homes during the course of my life. Two of them were homes that I lived in and two of them were investment properties, rental real estate. Um, Three of the four properties were in Northeast Pennsylvania. And here's what I'll tell you about Northeast Pennsylvania versus Southeast Pennsylvania. So now, where, where are they? Let me find them here. All right, all right, right over here. They didn't know I was going to call them out. They surprised me this morning. So Steve and Carol, uh, lifelong friends of mine, right? We all grew up in Northeast Pennsylvania together. They pop in today. So you pop in, you surprise me, you get mentioned in a sermon, right? Here's what I'll tell you about where we grew up versus right here. Real estate here costs three times as much as what it does where we grew up. That's the honest truth, not an exaggeration. Three times. Three times as much. But the good news is property taxes are only three times as much too, right? So it all... No, wait, that doesn't work out. Right? It, I, and I remember 13 years ago when we bought our current home, I had a hard time wrapping my mind around that cost. I had a really hard time because this is the fourth home that I've purchased. I purchased three other homes. They didn't cost anywhere near what we paid for our home here. And I remember when I was telling somebody about the prices of homes here in this area, and this is somebody who had spent her whole life in this area, she looked at me like, what? And I was like, yeah, do you see what they cost? She's like, yeah. Isn't that just what a house costs? I was like, not anywhere else. You know, here they cost that, but they don't cost that other places This is my fourth rodeo here, and they didn't cost me this the other times. And so I remember being very stressed about it. And and when we found our house, the house was owned by a relocation company. So I don't know if you know the scoop with something like that, but what that means is that the previous owners had been moved by their job, and, and a relocation company took possession of the property and said, hey, because we need to move you for the company, we will buy your house and then sell it on the market. We will assume all the, the headaches that go with this. And, uh, and so I remember touring our house and looking at it and realizing, all right, I could see why it's still on the market because it, it was a nice enough home, but it needed some work. But I thought, you know, for the work that this house needs, they're asking a little too much money and they really need to come down if this house is going to sell. And so 
I remember talking to our realtor about it, and I said, I'm going to come up with an offer, and I'll let you know very soon what offer we're going to make, because this is very cost prohibitive to live in this area, and uh, we're going to need them to work with us if we're going to be able to pull this off and actually buy a home in Southeast PA. And so I came back with our offer, and I said, okay, right off the bat, I would like them to drop the price by 30 grand, and... And the inspection report shows that there's a couple thousand dollars in repairs, and I'd like them to make those before closing. And I would also like them to pay all our closing costs. And my realtor, and so, it's so funny, I'm looking at the faces of the realtors in the congregation right now. I'm looking at, my realtor was like, she just looked at me, and she, she said, you know, you're going to offend them with this offer. And I said, here's what I know. You can't offend a relocation company. The people that lived there prior, if they were still living there and directly were selling it, yes, this would be very offensive. But they're gone. It's a relocation company. The worst they could say is, no, I'm not going to offend them. They don't have feelings. It's a company. And she's like, all right, I'll submit the offer. We'll see what they say. And I said, well, basically, if there's any chance of me being able to afford this home, they kind of have to say yes. And so, otherwise, we have to keep looking. So she presented the offer to the relocation company, and they essentially accepted it. They made a little bit of a minor change. It, wasn't, it was more procedural than anything, but they, they accepted it. And I remember thinking, okay, well, apparently we're going to be able to buy this house. And, you know, I, I bring that up. Partly, I think that was on my mind this week because of just a variety of, of um, conversations and that lunch that I had earlier this week. And I look at this portion of Scripture that we just read together, and it's very clear that when it comes to our walk with Jesus, when it comes to His calling on our lives, we're going to have to need to consider a price that we're willing to pay. You're going to have to figure out a price that you're willing to pay to answer that call. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, in your day-to-day life and in mine, the highest cost thing that you're probably ever going to buy is a property to live in, right? But here, Jesus talks about something that actually has a higher cost, because the truth is, if you answer this call, it's going to cost you everything. That's, I'm just going to spoil the ending, right? Let's just spoil the ending. In case you're wondering how much it's going to cost, it's only going to cost you everything, forever. It will only cost you everything forever. Now, if you're here with us for the first time, you're like, this is a really interesting sermon so far. It's like, what is this, what is this guy getting at? You know, I, I saw those words where it was talking about, wait, you have to hate your family, and this is going to cost you everything. This is not making Christianity sound very attractive, Pastor. We'll see, right? But here, you know, when you look at this, you have Jesus talking about a price that we have to pay, and the, the price is essentially, it's, it's everything, right? And that's why most people in this world aren't following him. Because he's saying it's going to cost you everything. So that's why most people don't follow him. There are a lot of people that try to be friends with Jesus at a distance, or they find him interesting, or they think that he has a, certainly a lot of interesting teachings that can have uh, a, a, like a, a reformation kind of effect on our character. And all that's certainly true. But a relationship with Jesus is a lot more than that. It costs you everything if you really understand the nature of it. And because the price seems too steep, many people just stick with what they're familiar with. They miss the entire point of why they were created. 
And they go to their graves having no clue that they've traded eternal joy for the fleeting treasures of this world that they don't get to keep anyway. So, as we look at this scripture today, I just want to encourage us not to make that mistake. I want us to look at exactly what Jesus tells us here about what it means to decide what price we're willing to pay to answer his call, and then my hope is that we'll say yes to him. But look at what he says here. And one of the things that he says here that's very interesting in in these opening verses is definitely an attention getter. And I'll even say this. I kind of, each week as I'm preparing my messages, I always think, how do I want to title this section? I want to give this point a a, a title. And as I looked at this, I thought to myself, you know what? Here's what I'm going to call this. This statement will only offend you if your heart is in the wrong place. This statement will only offend you if your heart is in the wrong place. Let me reread the statement and... You, you tell, well, don't tell me directly, but infer by a sad face if it offends you what Jesus says. It says, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, and, er, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." Very declarative statements here. So what does Jesus mean? Is Jesus teaching us, right now my my children are like, wait a second, why have we not been told that there's a portion of Scripture that tells us we can hate you, right? Well, during the course of his earthly ministry, Jesus had many interesting conversations. He said many interesting things during the course of that time. Some of the things he he said were intended to really get the attention of those who were listening to him in those contexts. Uh, Some of the things that he said really puzzled his initial audience, and many of these statements that he said puzzle people greatly today. And the words Jesus spoke in this particular passage is one of those statements that people look at and they're like, wait, what on earth is he saying? This doesn't sound like a very Jesus thing to say. He literally says here, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What does he mean by that? Well, Let's kind of break this down, because what's going on here in this portion of Scripture? At this point in his ministry, Jesus had revealed his divine nature. It's very obvious. For anyone that wanted to see it, you could see that Jesus was God in the flesh. He taught about eternal things with authority, not as someone who just knew about them, but as someone who had seen them and made them happen. He healed people of diseases. He raised people who were dead to life. He also ticked off the religious leaders who were jealous of the attention that he was getting. And in fact, when, you know, in this, at this particular season of Christ's ministry, because at this point now, he's making his way to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. At this point, Jesus was becoming so well known that great crowds of people started following him wherever he went. And when he would arrive in a town, great crowds would assemble to actually hear what he was saying. People were curious about the guy. His reputation was getting around. They wanted to see what he would do and what he would, what he would say. And it's ironic Because here we are a couple thousand years later, and people still do the same exact things to Jesus that they did back then. And what I mean by that is this. Some people in that crowd had devoted their entire life to following him, and they were very serious about that commitment, and they demonstrated that. But others in that crowd were just there to observe, maybe get a few ideas, and just kind of see what he was up to out of curiosity's sake. So to differentiate between the two... To differentiate between those who are saying, Lord, have my whole life, and those who are just saying, I'm kind of curious what this guy's going to do or say. As he's differentiating here, he makes a definitive statement. 
And what he's saying here is he's, is he's making these comments where he's saying, because I'm certain if you've never read this portion of Scripture, you're wondering, what on earth does he mean by saying, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, etc., 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 what does he mean by that? So he, was, he wanted to differentiate between what it meant to just casually observe him and to devotedly follow him. And he was basically saying here that a person's love for him must be so great that even their love for their closest family would look like hate in comparison. This was a way to say that in that culture, in that time. There's other portions of Scripture that use that same kind of language. And it's meant to be very definitive language to actually illustrate the concept of love, the fact that Jesus is saying, you must love me so much that your love for the people that you love deepest in this world would actually look like hate in comparison to the depth of the kind of love that you have for me. And he also talks about this idea, he says, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so in that context, too, keep in mind, you know, we wear cross jewelry, and we put crosses around our building here, and we use the cross as a, as a, a symbol that we respect, but in that culture, the cross was something reserved for the vilest of criminals, and the idea of bearing a cross the idea of bearing your own cross, what he's saying there is he's saying, you need to be willing to identify with me even in the greatest shame this world would be willing to heap upon you. So you need to love me more than anyone, and you must be willing to identify with me even in the lowest or most difficult tests you may ever experience this side of heaven. Even if the greatest reproaches of this world come upon you, you must still be willing to identify with me. What do you think? Could that be said of us? We're somewhere in that crowd, right? We're either casual observers to Jesus from the outside, or we're people who have come to the point where we say, you know what, Jesus, thank you for this life. I'm giving it back to you. It actually belongs to you anyway. And I will devotedly follow you with it 100%. Um, he, let me, um, I know some of you are training for different ministry positions. I know some of you in your roles of leadership uh, or in your roles of vocation have, have a leadership role. One of the things that you discover over time, if you put yourself in front of people, I know some of you are teachers. Uh, I know some of you operate in the business world as kind of like point people. If you put yourself in front of people, people are going to have an opinion about the things that you say and the things that you do, correct? Many of you can identify with that, Right. We see that in all different roles. If you're an entrepreneur, you're putting yourself out there. If you're a content creator, um, you know, if, if you write things, Derek, I know I have a couple of Derek's books. You know, if you put your content out there, people have opinions about it. People think about these things, right? Well, several years ago, I received a, a, a word of criticism from someone that I know the criticism was meant to discourage me, but it actually had the opposite effect. It was a really weird form of criticism. Tell me how you would have received this kind of critique. I was actually critiqued or criticized for caring more about our family than I do about our church. So think about that statement. I was criticized for caring more about my family than I do about our church. And I thought that was a a very interesting thing to hear when I received that criticism, um, because I know in my heart that I love my family, and I know in my heart that I love our church. But here's the thing, I do care about my family more so than anybody else on the earth. And who would expect me not to? It just seemed like a funny thing for someone to critique. Yeah, he cares more about his family than other people in his life. (laughs) Am I being criticized right now? Like, is that a compliment or a criticism? I just remember thinking, that's the strangest thing. And to be honest, it made that critic sound unwise and immature to me. 
And I thought, can I listen to anything this person says if that would be the type of thing that they would critique? But I think it's interesting when you look at what Jesus says here in this portion of Scripture, according to him, my love for my family, even though it is the greatest of my earthly loves, it must pale in comparison to my love and devotion for him. If I'm really going to be his disciple, that's how it needs to be. My love for him needs to come first. All other love needs to come after that. Now, the great news about that, however, even if that sounds like a strange thing, at least initially, is that when I truly come to understand what it means to love Jesus, and when I truly come to understand what it, what it looks like to follow him, then I will truly understand what it looks like to love my family his way. And through my relationship with him, there's another benefit that comes to me. I'm granted his power and his wisdom to actually love and lead my family the right way. So I don't have to rely on my own strength. I don't have to rely on my own wisdom. And I can love them with a greater love than if I wasn't loving Christ first. It's kind of fascinating how it all works. So when I look at Christ's comments here in this passage, specifically about this idea of loving him above everyone else, I realize that statement will only offend me if it needs to. And it's actually supposed to be offensive. It's supposed to offend. And I actually think, and I've said this before, the gospel tends to offend us before we find life in it. Because it shakes us out of our worldly sensibilities and helps us to start seeing things from an eternal perspective that, naturally speaking, you would not notice on your own. And I would not notice on my own. It will only offend me, the things Jesus is saying there. It's only going to offend me if my heart's in the wrong place. But if I love Jesus first, then I can truly love my family. Then I can truly love our church. Then I can truly love my friendships. Then I can truly love myself. If I love Jesus first, I'll learn to see all the other relationships that I have in my life through his eyes, and I'll also be granted his power to do so. So Jesus says this is the nature of what it actually looks like. This is the cost of following him. But then he goes on. He talks about this idea of building, right? So have you considered the cost of what you're trying to build? So think about that in your own life, especially if you're wrestling with this idea of answering your calling. Have you considered the cost of what you're trying to build? Look at what Jesus says here in verses verses, uh, 28 down to 30 of, of chapter 14. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, mentioned just a few moments ago about the process of us buying our home, but I also mentioned in that process we discovered, and we knew this ahead of time, that there are a variety of repairs that needed to be made eventually on the home. We also knew that they weren't going to be things that we were able to do right away. So part of what made buying that home affordable for us was the fact that it had a variety of updating needs and cosmetic repairs. Structurally, everything was fine, but we had to budget for those things over time. And over the past 13 years, we've been continuing to work. I still have a list. I'm not done with my list. And some of those things were on the initial list. I'm still working my way through these things. But I remember the first year we had the house, we replaced the steps out front. So that was a cost. We did that on the one-year anniversary of us buying the house. And I remember saying, happy birthday, house. You got steps. (laughs) Sounds very exciting, right? At one season of my life, that would not have sounded exciting. It sounded very exciting to me at that point. Um, Then a little time after that, we put on a new roof. I'm like, all right, 
And I like the color of the new roof better than I like the old color, so I'm doubly happy about that. Then we replaced the furnace. I wasn't looking forward to that one. That was a surprise. Surprise, you get to buy a furnace. Didn't know about that one. Um, what else did we do? A whole bunch of other things we did. Oh, and then the biggest was the kitchen and the flooring that we had to do. We did that in 2014, so six years after we bought the house. And I, I remember when we did that, we had no idea how much that was going to cost. We just knew that we wanted to do it. We could survive if we didn't do it, but we thought, no, it'd be nice to do that. Let's see if we... And we just met with a contractor to start figuring out, all right, how much do we actually need to budget to do this? And he mapped everything out for us, and then he presented to us our options. And, and we looked at it, and we're like, wait a second, that's a number we can afford now. We can do that now. And so we actually made the appointment to do that, and we made the updates, and the deal was as long as we did the majority of the prep work, he could do the installation and, and uh, do a good job, and everything came out nice. I, I loved it. There's a natural cost to building something, though, that you have to figure out before you, you do that, before you make a repair, before you do that. Otherwise, what happens? You don't figure it out ahead of time. You know, Jesus uses this example here of a, of a tower that's being built to illustrate this. And he said, if you're going to build something like that, make sure you know how much it's going to cost you ahead of time before you do it. Otherwise, you're going to look foolish if you start the project and you don't finish it. So this is kind of perfect. Steve and Carol, I'm going to pick on you guys again. I might pick on you three or more, four more times because you don't regularly attend here. And if you're not here next week, I, people will be like, well, they just live a couple hours away. But Steve, I, I wonder if you remember this specifically. Just pretend that you do, even if you don't, though. Um, so for eight years, so Steve is from the town Plymouth. Carol's from the town Plymouth as well. And uh, for eight years, I had the privilege to, to live and serve as a pastor in Plymouth. And I remember, I think this was on Shawnee Avenue in Plymouth, there was a home that had taken the front porch off at one point, and they were trying to put up a new porch, and they did it all wrong, and they had these beams supporting the front of the building for a while, and uh, it just stayed there. And the first year I was in Plymouth, it was like that the whole year, and I remember thinking, oh, uh, they never got around to that. But then winter came, and uh, it still was like that. I was like, that's not good to have that in winter. And then the next spring came, and it was still like that. And then all summer, it was still like that. And then it continued like that for several years until finally, I think somebody in the borough was like, hey, um, you're going to make the front of your house fall down if you don't get this fixed. You have to actually fix this. And I don't even know what the story is. I don't remember if you ever noticed seeing that or not. But I remember seeing that every time I'd go down Shawnee, I'd always see this property that looked like this is not a good thing, right? They obviously started this project and didn't finish it, and you start making assumptions about the person that had done that when you see that. And Jesus is describing a situation very much like that in this portion of Scripture. If you see somebody that's building a tower, but they don't have enough to actually finish it, it starts to become a conversation. It becomes a community conversation. People look at it. If they didn't figure it out, if they didn't count the cost ahead of time and figure it out, well, Christ's words in this passage aren't really just about building. They certainly apply to building, but there's the deeper level he's getting here. And what he's talking about is the picture of discipleship, what it actually looks like to consider the cost of following him. And not just knowing about him. Billions of people in this world know about Jesus. A small percentage of those billions have given their life 100% to following him. He's talking about those who give their life completely to following him. And what he's doing here is he's saying, consider the cost. Now, what he's doing along the way is he's, he's building our lives. 
And he's using our lives to build into our families and to build into our ministries and to build into our businesses with the specific aim of giving him glory. But what will it cost you to follow him? What will it cost you to follow his lead? What are you willing to pay to build things his way? He's saying, think about it. He's not trying to present following him like it's just this easy path. It's a blessed path. It's a joyful path. And it ends well. But he doesn't present it as, a, as, the, light, as the way to earthly ease. He says, consider the cost. And he gives another analogy in addition to building. He also talks about it in this term of, of describing this like a war. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, look at what he says in verses 31 and 32. He says, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other king is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So I find it very interesting that Jesus uses the analogy of a king going out to war in the midst of his challenges here to follow him. So if you're thinking about somebody going off to war, somebody planning a war, someone strategizing, going off to a war involves a great deal of planning. It involves a great deal of gathering resources. You need to secure financial reserves. You need to assemble a band of soldiers. You need to train them to fight. You need to actually prepare for what, what are you going to do when they get injured or, or, or captured, and, and how are you going to actually get them back and help them heal. It's not a small undertaking, and there's a lot of attention to detail that goes into this idea of waging a war. And I preach a lot about Jesus, right, kind of all the time, Um, but sometimes I wonder if people really know what I'm talking about when I speak about the nature of following him. The truth is, following Jesus can feel a lot like getting involved in a war, And that might sound a little strange, but I do believe it's true. And not a war in the physical sense, but certainly a war in the spiritual sense. You decide to commit your life to following Christ. You decide to commit your life to answering His calling on your life, to be His disciple and to serve Him in a particular way. You need to know ahead of time that there will indeed be people in this world who come against you. They will not all support that thought. They will not all support your decision. It won't seem rational to them. It won't make sense that you're doing what you're doing. It's not going to seem rational to you that people would come against you in the midst of it. But it definitely happens. And I have to tell you, and I don't say this to to alarm you, but maybe just to make you aware, every single time I've ever had a clear understanding that the Lord was saying to me, do this specific thing. Every single time he's asked me to do a major task or take on something that that was a major undertaking that involved answering a specific aspect of his calling on my life, every single time I've done that, without without exception, I have experienced some level of irrational opposition. I can't think of a time that that didn't happen. And so it's kind of interesting because you find yourself, you didn't think you were getting involved in a war, and then you discover, no, you very much are. But here's the thing. Don't let yourself ever believe that people are your enemy, because that's not where the war is. Sometimes you see the war, and it looks like other people are involved, but that's not really the deal at all. 
People in this world, Scripture describes those that don't know Christ as walking around with blinders on. They don't even know. Their hearts are deceived. They don't even realize what's going on. They don't realize that Satan is deceiving them, and Satan deceives plenty of people. It's one of his favorite things to do. He deceives people continually so that they don't see the light, so that they don't understand the truth, so that they don't walk in the truth, and so that they oppose those who attempt to walk in the truth. Scripture even tells us that in the last days, people will look at at good and call it evil. And they'll look at evil and they'll call it good. I think we're there. It seems to me like we've pretty much arrived, right? Cool, we get to see prophecy fulfilled right in front of our face. We live in the day where people call evil good and good evil. Shouldn't be surprised. Scripture said it was going to happen. And so it's an aspect of this spiritual war that's going on. It's what Scripture told us ahead of time to expect. But the battle is not with other people. You have no human enemy. There isn't, even if somebody thinks they are your enemy, you don't need to think of them as your enemy. Scripture is very clear that the battle is actually spiritual in nature. But here's the other thing that we need to know about this idea of following Christ, even if, if we start to view this through the lens of the spiritual war that it certainly can be. The real battle being spiritual in nature, we also know that Christ has spiritually secured the victory for us when he rose from the grave. Christ secured victory in his resurrection that he shares with all who trust in him. A victory over sin, so you don't need to be mastered by sin any longer. A victory over Satan, so you don't need to be deceived by Satan any longer. And a victory over death. You don't need to live in the fear of death any longer because you've been given life through your resurrected Savior whom you have trusted 100% with the life that you presently have. His victory can become your victory if you're willing to entrust your life to him without reservation. And that's what Jesus shares with us when we look at his life, when we look at his words. But there's one other thing that comes up real quickly here in, in, in uh, Luke chapter 14 that I don't want to skip this morning, and that's this. You're not ready to answer the call until you're willing to pay the big price. You're not ready to answer the call until you're willing to pay the big price. The way Jesus says it here is this. In verse 33, he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Why does Jesus say such ambiguous things? I'm joking, right? (laughs) There's no ambiguity to that at all. Jesus, what do I need to renounce in order to become your disciple? Let me look through the list. Everything. Everything. Well, what on earth does that mean? What does it mean that I have to renounce everything? What he's saying is this. If there's anything in your life that's still more important to you than him, you don't get it yet. Right? If there's anything in our lives that is still more important to us than Jesus, we're not quite there yet. You're not ready to answer the call until you understand the big price that you need to pay. And the big price is everything. And when we look at what Jesus says here in this passage, Jesus makes it really clear that if there's anything in our lives that's still more important to us than Him, then that thing is what we're currently worshiping. And eventually, our affections need to be transferred from that thing to Him. He should be the one we worship. He should be the only object of our worship. And in this passage, He encourages us to renounce our idols. 
and to renounce all the things of this world that we mistakenly believed could satisfy the deep longing of our hearts because your heart longs for Jesus. Whether or not you've realized up to this point that that's what your heart was longing for, your heart longs for him. And you'll find peace when you find him, but you're not going to find peace if you try and find that peace through anything else. You're not going to find lasting peace. You might find a momentary band-aid, but I'm telling you, it's going to wear out. It's going to need to be replaced with something else. The only lasting source of joy, the only lasting source of peace that your heart will ever be able to latch onto is Jesus Christ. The idols of this world have no lasting value. They cannot satisfy our soul. And I hope it doesn't take most of our lives for us to figure that out. For some people, it takes them almost their entire life to finally figure that out. But some people are blessed to kind of have that light bulb go on on the early side. So how big of a price are you willing to pay to follow Jesus and to say yes to his calling on your life? Again, quite frequently I hear people say that they're willing to pay the big price, but when you take a closer look, you, you quickly realize that, that many people are all talk and no faith, or all talk and no action. How many people do you know in your day-to-day life that won't even give up watching TV to invest in themselves, to invest in, in their relationships, to, to take on their, their, uh, you know, their dreams and to answer the desires that the Lord's placed upon their heart? How many people in your life do you know that won't even give that up to say yes to Christ's calling on their day-to-day life? There's a song called, and I, I know I quoted a song last week, but I've just been listening to a lot of music lately, so you're just going to have to forgive me. I'll probably quote songs next week, too. We'll see. Depends on what I listen to this week. There's a song called, do you ever hear of the group FM Static? I don't expect that you have. I know I listen to obscure stuff. You did? I have. Oh, two of you have. All right, look at that. That's the loudest amen I got the whole sermon, too. I love them, right? They have some good stuff. One of their albums is one of my favorites. But they have a song called Something to Believe In. It's a really cool song, if you like that style of music. And I became familiar with that song back in 2003. And the Lord uses music frequently to kind of inspire me and encourage me in a good direction. There's a line from that song that often comes to my mind, especially when it comes to the subject of faith in Christ, and especially when it comes to the subject of answering His call on my life. And in that song, they say this, Tell me this isn't a song that can really like boil, or a line that can really boil down just the crux of life in just a statement. But they say this, don't want to spend my lifetime figuring out, I missed the point, now it's over. Don't want to spend my lifetime figuring out, I missed the point, now it's over. I'm really glad we're here today. I'm glad those of you on our live stream are with us today, those of us maybe even accessing this via YouTube or via the podcast. We have the privilege to not miss the point, right? Are you willing to pay the price to say yes to Jesus? Are you willing to trust Him with 100% of your heart, 100% of your life? Can I just tell you, I promise you that if you take the risk to trust Him with that level of depth, holding nothing back from Him, I promise you, you won't regret it. I promise you that He will satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. I promise you that in Christ you will find what you have spent your entire life looking for. Believe me when I say, or at least believe Him in what He has said, that He can satisfy the deepest needs of our soul. And He promises us good things. 
as we trust in him. One last scripture I want to read for us as we finish up today. I'll bring it up here on the screen for us from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. It says this, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And a beautiful thought, that Christ Jesus has made you his own, that you're part of his family, you're part of his church if you trust in him. Apostle Paul goes on to say, Brothers, I do not consider that I, that I have made it my... I'll say it again. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Answer the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I promise you, you won't regret it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the things that you reveal to us in your word. Lord, we know that there are many things in this world that look appealing to us. There are many things in this world that up to this point, maybe we've looked at, we've thought, yeah, you know what, that'll do it. Yeah, that sounds purposeful, that sounds useful, that sounds encouraging, that sounds wonderful. Lord, there's many interesting and useful things in this world, but the things of this world are very temporary in nature. They don't have eternal consequence like you do. The things of this world that we've tried to utilize to satisfy the deepest longing of our soul, they can't do that. They're not designed to do that. They're just useful things, but they're not eternally useful. So, Lord, I'm grateful for the fact that you've kind of, you've drawn the line. You've placed the challenge before us. You give us the opportunity to love you most. So, Lord, you know I love my wife. You know I love my kids. You know I I love my parents and my siblings and my friends and our church family. But, Lord, I know that I can't love them the way I'm supposed to love them if I don't love you first. So, Lord, I pray for your strength to love you first. Lord, you know the things in this world that I think are interesting, the things in this world that I think are cool and useful the things in this world that I think are helpful, and I'm grateful for all of these things. But, Lord, I also know that the things of this world are going to be burned up someday. So help me not to try and find some level of satisfaction for my soul through something that's just a temporarily useful tool. Lord, I pray that I would always recognize that you are the only one who can satisfy the deepest longings that I have within me, and I pray that that would be the case for each of us gathered here today and anyone who's joining us remotely. Lord, we need you, and we pray that you'd help us to see just how much we need you. And Lord, if it takes trials, and if it takes low moments, and if it takes whatever it takes, that's fine, because it pales in comparison to the fact that you have a glorious future in store for all who trust you. You tell us that in this life we're going to experience trials, we can expect to be treated the same way you were treated. None of us should be surprised by that, because you've revealed it to us in your word. And Lord, even when we look at a portion of Scripture like we looked at today from Luke 14, we realize you're not trying to paint walking with you like it's some sort of easy path here on this earth. It's a joyful path, and it's a blessed path, but it's not easy. It'd be much easier to just do what the world's doing, and to believe the things the world believes, and to chase after the things the world chases after, because we'd certainly be applauded for it. 
But then we look at what you tell us, and you say, we need to be 100% with you. So, Lord, if I'm at 99%, I pray that you'd chip away at that 1%. If any of us is at 99% or 50% or whatever our percentage is, Lord, we pray that you would chip away at that and you'd help us to get to the spot where we say, you know what? It's all been fun up to this point. That's great, but I don't want to miss the point. And then now it's over. And I look back over the course of my life and I realize, oh, my goodness, I missed the point. The point is to know you and to enjoy you forever. The point is to glorify you. So, Lord, we want to do that. We don't want to live for our own glory. We don't want to live for our own preference. We don't want to live just for the earthly pat on the back. We want to lift up your name, and we want to glorify you, and we're just so grateful for the fact that you say we're invited to do just that. You don't look at us and say, nah, You look at us and you say, I want you to be part of what I'm doing. I want you to be part of my family. I want you to be part of my eternal kingdom to experience the joys and the riches and the blessings of being part of that kingdom. So, Lord, we're grateful that you offer that to us, and we pray that we would accept that offer, and that as we accept that offer, that we would just simply say, all right, Lord, what's my marching order today? What do you want me to do today? Who do you want me to serve? What do you want me to say? And where do you want me to go? And that we would make a pattern of spending our entire lives just simply saying yes to you day by day in every context that you place us in. So again, Lord, we thank you for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to start off our week looking at these things and thinking about these things. It's such a blessing. We're just grateful for it all. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to know you and and to walk with you and to, to model what it means to be yours to those that we love. And we thank you for all of these things. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.